John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's always good to be with you guys. I'm uh, hiding out in Chicago right now, one of my many stops along the last month or two. So uh, we're going to get into a pretty interesting accident today. But it, it seems to me, gentlemen, that these types of accidents, while the board has investigated it, and I've done it throughout my career, and I know that, John, you've done a lot of these things because you've seen them. One of the big things about accidents like this is that it involves little things, i.e. a B-nut, a very small B-nut, typically on a fuel line or some other critical line where it either hasn't been properly torqued properly installed, or it's been over-torqued to cause damage, which then leads to a, uh, a particular system failing. And in this case, the NTSB put out a safety alert, and it was talking about B-nuts and the fact that they've identified several accidents involving uh, the failure of a B-nut, whether it failed itself or was failed to be torqued by the mechanic. Um, they've called it maintenance-related issues. And they identify a fixed wing beach bonanza. I think it was an A36 bonanza where they found a loose B-nut that caused an engine failure and a couple of other accidents. But the one that we focused on today is a Bell 206 down in Zephyr Hills, Florida, where this particular instance, the pilot who was involved in the accident also happened to be the mechanic. And when you start looking at a dual role involved in an accident, you have to really separate the two functions. That is, we take this single person, but we take them and use or basically identify the AMP part of his, his tasks. And then we look at it from the piloting standpoint. And did the AMP part of him cause the pilot part of him to have to do things that he didn't want to do? And, and so getting into this, I know that uh, we've researched this, and Todd, uh, you pulled up the accident data and you pulled down some pictures of the aircraft in the, uh, in the trees. Uh, this pilot, you know, started in the, in the hangar, if you will, 
working on the helicopter. Take us through, and John, you can take us through as well, what was what was taking place with the maintenance side of the helicopter uh, before the accident? Well, according to the uh, information in the public docket, and as all of you who view us uh, regularly know, you have the accident of the incident reports, and you often have the public docket, which is background information, which often sheds light on what they're talking about in the main report. And the main report mentioned that the pilot was also the mechanic, mentioned, in fact, the pilot's extensive experience flying with the, even this make and model, I think 2,400 hours in this make and model, but said nothing about his maintenance experience. We had to look outside even the public docket to find out that he had gotten his A&P some years ago. I believe it was uh, 2007, you said. This is a 2020 accident. Nowhere in the report does it state how often he did maintenance, whether he did maintenance on aircraft other than the ones he was flying, or whether there was any kind of sanction uh, with regard to his maintenance activities in the past. Be that as it may, uh, one thing that was clear was that he was performing the maintenance on the aircraft and apparently, although it's not entirely clear, it appears that he also did the 100-hour inspection on his own aircraft. And as uh, anyone who's uh, tried to write anything knows, um, trying to be your own editor is problematic because there are things you're blind to that another person might see. This is no different from what happens in the world of maintenance. Uh, having one person do something and having someone else check on that person is a common thing in aviation, especially in, in the cockpit with a two-person cockpit, uh, these are very formalized roles. When it comes to maintenance, there is formality to it. In fact, the report stated that the pilot did follow Rolls-Royce maintenance procedures for this engine. It was a Rolls-Royce engine. And Rolls-Royce was, say again? Almost followed. Well, as John said, he almost followed the procedures because as the report stated, um, there was a, a B-nut that was installed about 75 flight hours before the event. And at some point during the 75 hours, it loosened up and caused a problem where there was a fuel leak and engine lost power and the uh, pilot auto-rotated into uh, trees in the swamp. Fortunately, uh, he was able to survive. The helicopter, not so much. But uh, the Rolls-Royce uh, part of this they provided their maintenance manuals and specifically said what the procedures were for tightening this nut. And apparently these procedures were not used. Or at least, or at least followed to the extent necessary. Now, again, you brought up a good point, Todd, and that is there is no discussion by the board about this person who acted as both the AMP and by the way, he also had IA authorization or inspection authorization. So there's no real discussion about his experience and background. And as you brought up, John, um, it, it's apparent that he must have done some sort of, uh, you know, more invasive type maintenance, changing out a turbine section or doing a hot section on this engine. That in and of itself also begs the question, how invasive did he, he get? Did he do all the necessary steps it's, it's obvious that he didn't properly torque this B-nut and then put the torque paint or torque putty on it. So what else did he shortcut? The board is very silent on all of these things. And these are just obvious questions that the three of us have been asking each other before we started the show today. All right, so it's not uncommon for an IA to do the work on the airplane. And normally 
what I have seen is an IA will come in and do the inspection and do it in its entirety. You know, there may be a, a few things that he can't do until maintenance does something else, but do the do as much as he can and then stop and then come back in as a mechanic. And sometimes they pause in between. Might be, I did the inspection today and I'll do the work tomorrow, but take a little break on it before you come back in and do the work. And, and, and then another break at the end to give yourself time to recollect on what you've done. So it's not uncommon for that, that to happen, but it does put a bigger burden on the mechanic to make sure that he's done what he needs to do and done it properly. And if you're working on flight controls, you're working on landing gear, you're working on the propeller, you're working on the engine, uh, your, your antenna's got to be on sensitive because a mistake could lead to a really bad outcome. So uh, many mechanics will get somebody else to come and look at them or to take a good break, maybe an overnight break in that case, and come back in the morning fresh and retrace all your steps. You know, take the, take the instructions out of the manual and go out over them one by one by one. Again, so you can do your own inspection with a break to clear your mind before you come back. So lots of mechanics have used their system, whatever they've developed, to do the checks and balances themselves. It's clear that this guy probably didn't have enough experience in that area and, and just went ahead and did it and said, yep, I did it all. And uh, that B-nut probably was coming loose and uh, dumping fuel any you know in helicopters sometimes you don't see the the fuel leaks that are, are occurring in flight because it's coming down the, the helicopter and the downwash is taking it away well you you bring up a couple of points here john that again the board doesn't even doesn't even attempt to discuss one of them of course is the fact that nobody nobody seemed to talk to this guy as far as his maintenance, uh, you know, tasks and activities. Did he get distracted while he was in the middle of doing this procedure? Uh, did he just get, you know, he was racing the clock because he wanted to get the aircraft back in the air and he was pushing through it. He's by himself. I mean, all of those things, those are all legitimate discussions that you need to have with the guy who was actually turning the wrench. Did you use a calibrated wrench? Did you just pull a crescent wrench out of your pocket? Did you have special tools like you've talked about, John, where, you know, this may be in a very inaccessible area. He was able to get his hand up there and turn that B-nut with his fingers and got it finger tight, but couldn't get a tool up there to torque it to the proper torque value. And then, of course, put torque paint on. So there's a lot of things that were never answered. And then you brought up uh, another point, and that is, if this thing, because it was 75 hours from the time he probably touched it to the time it backed off, you would think that is a pilot doing a pre-flight and you open up those cowling doors when you're inspecting the engine, because that's part of the inspection on a Bell helicopter, you would have smelled fuel because it was probably puking out of that, that B-nut before, because it apparently backed off, it unthreaded. And so, right, so it had to be leaking for a while. Yeah. And so how do you just ignore that unless you didn't do a thorough pre-flight like you're always talking about? And we know that those pre-flights uh, don't occur. I mean, we've had accidents with lousy pre-flights 
I, you know, I talk endlessly about observing pilots at both corporate and, and general aviation that do a, a walk in the sun, looking at everything except their airplane. And one of these days I'm going to set up the, the camera and, uh, and just videotape some of these people. Um, I have, we'll have to use your editing skills, Todd, to, to black out the uh, end numbers and the rest of it, uh, or we'll be, we'll be uh, sued like crazy. The report mentioned he had 2,400 hours of experience in this make and model of helicopter. It didn't what? say whether it was this specific helicopter. Was he doing maintenance? on uh, just one helicopter or was he doing maintenance on a whole bunch of helicopters had he been flying this helicopter regularly or is this the first time he'd ever seen this helicopter simple questions which could have been simply answered back in the time when this was done and by the way uh, the ntsb did state that no one traveled for this accident which is not unusual uh, the fa or some other third party was providing the information for this but still the management of this is at the at the ntsb level why didn't somebody the, ask some simple questions like, hey, why did you ask this question? And what was the probable cause statement, Todd? Well, it's a very extensive statement. And let me get to it and I'll read it in full. Yeah, it had 10 words in it. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of this accident to be improper tor torquing of the bead nut at the fuel control unit, which led to a total loss of engine power and subsequent auto rotation that resulted insubstantial damage. Well, I'm glad they said they didn't travel because you didn't need to travel to come up with that ridiculous probable cause. I mean, that doesn't tell you anything. There is nothing to be learned from that. That's the obvious. I mean, I could have basically told you that and never even seen the helicopter. I mean, why? How did this happen? What are the lessons learned? What's the feedback? Whether it's to this pilot slash mechanic who apparently survived without injury and is back turning wrenches and probably flying. And where is the message, the safety benefit to others so that it doesn't happen to them? Well, interestingly, so in, the, in this alert bulletin they put out, they cite four accidents between 21 and in, in a two year period, essentially, four accidents to justify the alert. But why wasn't there some something out more than what they wrote in the report for probable cause and for findings? You know, findings, the fuel control system, improper maintenance. Eh, yeah, we can figure that out, just like you said. And personnel issues, scheduled routine maintenance. Absolutely, this report is absolutely not worth the papers written on as far as uh, being a safety benefit to the industry. It Look, just wasn't leaving out there. And it took four accidents, including uh, uh, were any of those fatal? Yeah, there's a couple of those were fatal. And uh, before they put anything out, a loose peanut. Well, the sad thing is, is that, you know, the three of us are talking about this. We're asking these questions. Why aren't the investigators asking them themselves these questions? And like you said, John, I mean, if you're going to write a probable cause, why do you wait to put it? Why? I mean, even in the alert, what what were the recommendations out of the alert? I'll try to pull it up and show it. Let's, can you put it on? Well, screen? let's uh, do that. Let me find that recommendation. The fact of the matter is, is that 
why why aren't these recommendations if they put out a safety alert why aren't they reiterated pulled out of actual reports where people can learn from a specific accident versus having some vanilla fudge you know generic um probable cause statement um and then waiting to put you know some of the good stuff into an alert because again you said, John, that, you know, these accidents are you know, during a two-year period. So we're going to wait two years to improve aviation safety when we could have waited, you know, definitely less than a day had they put something out after this particular accident. Well, so you reiterate to the industry, hey, just be, just be knowledgeable about the fact that it's real easy to forget about these B-nuts. Make sure that you follow the procedures torque and put, a tank, put the torque paint on. All of these things, it's feedback is what enhances aviation safety. Well, let me defend the NTSB. They did put out a list, 11 points, in fact. Okay. And the title of this list was, What Can Mechanics Do? Ensure the proper type of B-nut is used for the maintenance task and that the B-nut does not have any pre-existing damage, especially to the threads or the sealing surfaces. If a B-nut or any hardware appears questionable, remove it from service. When in doubt, throw it out, exclamation point. Now that I think is some very hard hitting, you know, to the point kind of advice that could be very, very useful for a mechanic. Let me just take one more example of the 11. Perform the required leak checks after the task is completed. Wow. Okay, okay. but that's obvious stuff, Todd. The problem is, is that one, nobody examined that B-nut in the accident we're talking about to ensure that it wasn't damaged, it wasn't stripped, it wasn't anything. It, I mean, nobody looked at it apparently because they sure didn't talk about it in depth with a lot of detail, yet they're putting out an alert that alludes to, you know, be sure to check the B-nut for damage and make sure the threads aren't. Where did that all come from? Was it, was, was it from one of the other three accidents they looked at? And why didn't they go to that depth of examination on the accident we're talking about? Because well, in case you were suffering from a lack of information, an information deficit, as it were, the end of this bulletin also gives you not one, not two, but five different links to further information, other safety bulletins especially. They even have QR codes. For example, here's my favorite title, Avoid the Dirty Dozen. Now. John, you've talked about the dirty dozen for years. You probably can recite these backwards and forwards. Save us the trouble of reading the safety alert and just tell us what the dirty dozen are, or at least some of them, the good ones. All right, complacency is a common one, right? Because you think you did something, you're looking down a checklist like on a maintenance manual, come to the steps, say, oh yeah, I put that nut on, I tightened it, right? That's complacency. And I, I raised complacency first in this example, because I recently have started preaching about complacency. We have had an excellent, excellent record in commercial aviation with, with you don't want to say it, no accidents. Right? But I see complacency slipping in all over the place, near misses with pilots, with mechanics, and fuelers and others. All right? They're with getting, we're getting to the point where we've had no accidents, we're not going to have any accidents. Well, we don't have them because we were very diligent after getting our 
essentially punched in the stomach by a bunch of accidents that never should have happened. And all of a sudden, everybody was sensitive and everybody was paying attention. And now it's on the wane. So complacency is drifting back in. But, you know, the FAA themselves, uh, in all their safety programs for maintenance, for the for a while now, I'm not even sure. I was going to say for more than a year, but I'm not even sure. I think it goes back even further. They've been telling mechanics around the country that failure to fall procedures is the number one cause of accidents and incidents. Failure to follow procedures. And we clearly have this in this case because he didn't talk and he didn't put the stripe on the B-nut, which would readily identify during inspection or even a pre-flight that there was some slippage here, you know, and I like even using the the uh, the paste that we use that hardens and a clear indication of when something is starting to work loose, and you find that in the cowling, and then you know enough to go around looking to see where it came from. Right, so that's just two examples. There's there's a dozen issues on that dirty dozen that have been put there because of maintenance problems you know bad tooling lack of tooling uh installing the wrong parts you know quick look some of these these data tags on these parts the part numbers are super small and you you need to get proper light and sometimes a magnifying glass to read the damn things yeah. right and nines look like eights you know they're just it, it's not so easy sometimes you really got to pay attention when you when you search in parts, so especially in the dash number, you know, so you have a you have a component and then part number is one, two, three, four, five, six, dash. Then they start one, two, three, four, five. Well, a dash one and a dash five may not be interchangeable. So you gotta really pay attention as a mechanic. And we're seeing and, and GE has long said that that's the problem that they're having with their engines and air turnbacks and problems in general is that people are installing the wrong parts. Now, I had a certain tone of voice a couple minutes ago, and, you know, I was being kind of, I was, I was yanking some chains there, but there's some actually some good stuff there, and I'll make sure that in the documents that go along with the show, you'll have a link not only to the safety bulletin, but to the Dirty Dozen. I pulled that down, very colorful, very graphic, uh, very straight to the point. I think it was a useful document for review. And with respect to uh, misreading things, I admit, today when I was flying on a 172 with my instructor, afterwards I was dutifully taking down the information on the Hobbs meter, and I wrote down three when it should have been two. Now, had that problem not been caught, I'd be paying several more hundred dollars, but that's besides the point. Mistakes can happen. Well, it came this close to cost me just a little bit of cash. Yeah, that's selfish reasoning there, pal. So <laughs> whatever reasoning works to make you more diligent, use it. Well, you know, we've talked about it on this show at nauseum since the show began, and that is human factors, human factors, human factors. And the human factor is the generic title. It's all of the elements under the human factor, like John was bringing up, complacency, distraction, fatigue, you know, uh, rushing, you know, you're racing the clock, machoism, I can do it, been there, done that, done it a thousand times before. I don't need no stinking manual. I mean, all of these things. And, and if you're going to do a, a thorough and methodical investigation, 
then you really need to understand from the person who turned, why didn't you torque this? Or why did you believe you torqued this? Why did you believe you completed this particular step? Why didn't you put the torque putty or torque paint on that particular part? You're a mechanic. You're also an IA. You know what is required. All of that should have been asked. I don't care if it was from the MTSB or the FAA, but that information needed to be captured to understand, is this a systemic problem? with this guy, this operator, this helicopter, or is it an isolated event because of? And I mean, that's what it takes to really enhance safety and get these lessons learned. We're preaching it all the time. Lessons learned, lessons learned. But if you don't do what you need to do, then there is no lesson to be learned other than, okay, they just filled out all the blocks. It's in the database and there it is. Yeah, it's not uh, not easy, you know. And uh, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. In uh, in the one of the accidents that's in this bulletin, uh, it talks about uh, a rental airplane, and and uh, student pilots or any pilot that's renting airplanes really needs to pay attention to the to their financial needs. And they're, they uh, should definitely have rental insurance for their airplanes, for this for the airplane to protect them, themselves and their family financially. So, uh, and just a word to the wise to everybody out there is pay attention. If you're going to rent airplanes, make sure you're covered. Yeah, well, you and again, that's another good point, John, is because I go out, I assume as a renter pilot, that whatever maintenance has been done has been done properly. And so now I get in there, kick the tires, light the fire and rock and roll. And on climb out, the engine quits, not because of what I did, but because of what the mechanic failed to do. And while, yeah, it may not have been something I could have caught on a pre-flight, I'm the guy who ends up with, in, in um, at least instilling, the damage to the aircraft because I got to make an off airport landing or whatever. So it, it would behoove you that if you rent airplanes, one, you can never, ever have tacit trust in the mechanic because you have no idea who that mechanic is, what work they've done. And reading a logbook isn't going to tell you anything other than possibly that the airplane is airworthy. But the fact is, is that if something does happen and you can't get that airplane back to a piece of pavement where you're not damaging it, you're going to be liable for it. So renter's insurance, it's cheap when you look at the grand scheme of things, especially when it, uh, the repair or replacement cost of an aircraft. And when you have your documents from your letter from your insurance company saying it's time to re renew your insurance, do not put it over on the bookshelf, over on the side of your office, and forget about it, which you did in the last week and a half. So after the show, I'm going to pick it up and pay the <laughs> pay the piper. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad we have real live examples there. That's <laughs> <laughs> eh, very good. We really, we really appreciate you. So, well, I think that you know from this show, this is really lessons to be learned, and that is, again. 
especially these critical components where, yeah, you can't see what you're doing. You can feel it to an extent, but make sure that you've done it and you're confident that it has been done and done properly. Um, and again, never assume that just, yeah, I remember I tightened it up. I got it finger tight and yeah, I got a wrench in there and I'm, I'm pretty sure I did that. Well, it's not reflected in the logbook and it's definitely not reflected in evidence because there's no torque paint on it and you can't hide something like that. You got a decent investigator, doesn't take rocket science, but you look in there and you go, hmm, there's no torque paint on there. So apparently you didn't finish the process. Yeah, how true. How so, true. Okay, Todd. Well, we know that we have to leave the uh, the patriarch with uh, the final word. So I'll leave you with the second to the last word. Very good. And um, an example of what we did today is an example you should follow up. If you see something that's of interest to you, look into it, read the report. And if you say to yourself, did they miss something or did I miss something? Well, investigate that because by chasing that down, you might learn a thing or two that will give you much more than just the plain report will. Don't take it on faith that everything is in the report. Keep digging. And John, with that being said, I'm going to throw it back to you for our last words. You'll not, I'll have to go a little longer this time because this is a maintenance accident. Mechanics need to pay attention. The pilots have trust in you. Like Greg said, oftentimes it's tacit trust. Right? They rely upon mechanics to do the right thing. And when you start looking through these reports, it's pretty common that we have to find that we have mechanics that aren't exactly hitting the, a home run in that area. They're not doing the right thing. They're not following procedures to the full extent of the procedures like this with, with a, a torque stripe or or uh, torque body in place. And there's so many uh, issues. I mean, I've, I've seen lots of people not use torque wrenches. You know, that seems to be a, a very common area. Oh, I gotta go get one. Oh, it's out of calibration. You know, well, we'll just tighten it up and we'll deal with it. We'll check it later and later never comes. So follow the procedures. The FAA has been begging everybody, pay attention to procedures for at least a year that I know of. So, A, for mechanics, follow procedures, and also for flight crews, follow procedures. Do a good pre-planning session before you go flying. Do a good pre-flight before you get in the airplane, not just to walk around in the sun or dancing around to avoid the puddles on the ramp and not getting your shoes wet. And after you go flying, put that head on a swivel, Fortunately, lately, we haven't had a lot, but we have had, over time, a number of, of near misses and mid-air collisions because too many pilots are heads down. So pay attention, please, and fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments.
and be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.